This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 61, the eighth part of the history of 100 milers. Who would have thought there was so much history before the creation of Western States 100? Hopefully you are learning the true history. This episode will cover the 100 milers during the 1950s, including some world records. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Yes, the 50s, but not those kind of records. <laughs> now to our story. A hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. One hundred mile attempts mostly ceased across the world during the 1940s due to World War II. By 1946, some isolated 100-mile attempts re-emerged, including a walking event in England where seven athletes accomplished the distance in less than 24 hours. Ultra-running at other distances also came to life in South Africa when the Comrades Marathon, 55 miles, was again held in 1946. In England, the London to Brighton running race 52 miles was established in 1951. Ultra-running was reawakening. During the pre-war decades, hundreds of successful 100-mile attempts and events were held. Would the 100-miler truly come back? As the 1950s dawned, unique 100-mile adventures popped up in the newspapers, not all of them pleasant. During November 1951, about 100 migrant Mexican workers quit their cotton-picking jobs in western Tennessee and started a 100-mile journey to protest in Memphis. The men had been brought from Mexico to work on a plantation in Tiptonville. The Mexicans had quit their job because of bad food and pay. As of November 22, 1951, 49 of them had finished the 100 miles, foot sore and frightened, complaining bitterly about their working conditions to the Mexican consul. The feet of most of the finishers were badly blistered. They were given government-paid lodging and food in a local hotel. Fifty-one other men were still on the road walking. It was reported that others had been thrown into jail when they had tried to leave the plantation. A sheriff admitted to jailing about 20 of the 100-miler entrants. The group was eventually provided transportation back to their homeland. Solo 100-mile attempts that were used to get public attention and possible financial gain emerged again. Paul Arthur Smith of Mill City, Oregon, was known locally as Oregon's walking man, known before and after the war. I live in Oregon, Oregon's my home. I love the trees, the hills, the places I have in 1911, at the age of 26, he claimed that he had run 130 miles from Bend to Burns, Oregon in 22 hours 11 minutes. In 1926, Smith walked and ran 100 miles from Salem to Portland and back in a best-known time of 16 hours 26 minutes. 
His true fame came in 1928. Smith finished 21st in C.C. Pyle's Race Across America, also known as the Bunyan Derby. After the war in 1949, Smith still hoped to be a professional ultra runner. He gained national fame when he raced a horse for 75 miles on a half-mile oval track. The horse won by 14 miles. In 1951, Smith was 66 years old and he announced that he would try to break his own 100-mile record, this time walking from Bend, Oregon to Mill City. Smith began his 100-miler. Walking during the night brought some excitement, Smith said. Some fellow in a car apparently didn't see me and zoomed by so close that the sandwich I was about to eat flew out of my hand and was lost. And later on, I thought I heard someone walking behind me. When I looked back a few times, I saw nothing, but still heard steps that weren't mine. Then suddenly, something nipped at my heel, and when I kicked at it, I found out that it was a porcupine. He ran away in the woods when I kicked at him, and lucky for me, I missed him. That was close. Walking for so long at about 4,000 feet altitude dried up Smith's mouth. He tried to spit, but instead, out came his false teeth. He said, I was lucky again. Just as I spit him out, I made a grab and caught him before they hit the pavement. Smith finished his 100 miler in 17 hours, 6 minutes, missing his record by 40 minutes. He said he walked 176,000 steps and wore out a quarter inch of his leather shoes. Smith was proud of his walk and like many other professional ultra runners through time seeking fame, proclaimed that it was a world record. Paul Smith died in 1962 at the age of 77 and was called Walking Smith in his obituary. South Africa continued to take the lead in producing the greatest 100-mile runners of the time. Wally Hayward was another elite runner following the running footsteps of Arthur Newman and Hardy Bellington. Hayward would become one of the greatest 100-mile runners ever. When Wally was young, a friend talked Hayward into taking a running job to put in stakes for diamond mining claims. I had never run before, but he said I would be fine as I was always running and walking everywhere. They would represent prospectors and run to stake in square claims with pegs. One huge claim run involved 6,000 runners from ages 8 to 70. Prospectors gave the runners an idea where they wanted their claims, and when the flag dropped for the start, it was a mass stampede to go stake the best claims. Hayward described the chaos. When I got to the spot that I was to peg, there was an argument going on between a man who pegged some valuable claims and two big bullies who had pulled his pegs out and put in their own. There was a big dispute which resulted in the poor man who pegged first being beaten up and his leg broken. In 1927, at the age of 19, he joined a boys club and was invited to go running. His first run ended up being for 10 miles, which he thought was nuts. That's crazy. In those days, there was no one to tell you how or when you should run. There was no books to advise you. I used to go out training every afternoon. He ran a few races and at the end of 1929 read about the Comrades Marathon. He wrote the race director, Vic Clappen, and was shocked in the reply to learn that the race was about 55 miles. His longest run up to that point had been 37 miles. He decided to enter the 1930 race. 
Hayward was clearly a rookie at the 1930 Comrades and went out fast. By the halfway point, he surprised everyone and held a 29-minute lead. He later struggled, but held it together enough to win by 31 seconds with a time of 7 hours 27 minutes. He would go on to win Comrades a total of five times. In 1931, Hayward broke a bone in his foot while training for Comrades, and the next year was told by a doctor that some chest pain he was feeling was due to a strained heart. At age 23, he was told to never run again. He put running aside for a few years until a specialist told him the diagnosis was rubbish and told him to go home and put on his running shoes. By 1938, he was competing again. With the outbreak of World War II, Hayward was attached to the South African Engineer Corps, working in railroad construction, building and fixing bridges. As he became stationed in Egypt, he became known to run at least five miles before breakfast. Hayward returned from the war in 1945 and decided to start training seriously. He would often run home from work, returning after dark at 10 p.m. After being away from comrades for 20 years, he ran again in 1950 and won. The next year, 1951, he broke the down record in 6 hours 14 minutes. Hayward said that 1953 was his greatest running year. First, he won comrades in an astonishing record time of 5 hours 52 minutes, the first to break 6 hours. Next, he went to England to compete on the world stage. He got four months leave from his job and mortgaged his home to raise money for expenses. He first went to run London to Brighton running race, formerly in its third year. He boarded with legend Arthur Newton, who passed on wonderful advice. It was evident shortly after the start that Hayward was out to win. Shortly after 20 miles, he went into the lead and was ahead of the course record pace set by Newton. At Crawley, he couldn't use the railway level crossing because of a train, so he ran down the steps into the subway beneath the line. By 40 miles, he was well ahead of the field and went on to win in 5 hours 29 minutes, breaking the record time by 22 minutes. It finally was time for Hayward to attempt to run 100 miles. Hayward planned to try to break Hardy Bellington's record time of 13 hours 21 minutes, see episode 60. Two other runners participated in this time trial. Newton gave advice to the rookie 100-mile runners about hitting the wall at about mile 70. The runners received enemas before going to bed the evening before in order to save time spent in the bushes during the race. Runner Jackie Meckler wrote about the local enthusiasm for the race. This was exciting stuff for the local inhabitants, many of whom stayed on in the bar at the hotel until the start of the race. A lively party was still going strong when we arrived for a light breakfast at 2.30 a.m. It was absolutely bizarre eating this early morning meal amidst the blaring music being thumped out on a piano. The party came to an abrupt end when we were called to the start. Apart from a pool of light from the hotel, it was pitch dark. They were off and running at 3 a.m. Hayward wrote, I set off with a good measure of confidence and ran steadily for the whole race. Fortunately, I didn't hit the wall as Newton predicted, for which I was thankful. My time was 12 hours, 20 minutes. I broke Bellington's record by 1 hour, 53 minutes. It was reported. 
The South African finished with a sprint and was given a great ovation by the waiting crowd as he broke the tape. His nearest rivals were more than an hour behind him. With the 100-mile world record achieved, Arthur Newton encouraged Hayward to go after the 24-hour world record. Hayward wrote, I was somewhat dumbfounded, bearing in mind 72 miles was my longest ever training run. 100 miles was bad enough. Now he wanted me to tackle a world record that stood at over 152 miles. The man was nuts. The attempt was arranged at very short notices for judges, timekeepers, lap scorers, and others. The venue selected was at Motspur Park. Motspur Park Athletic Stadium was built by the University of London in 1928 and achieved fame when the world mile record was set there in 1938 on the 440-yard cinder track. Hayward was still suffering some leg pain from the 100-miler but was reasonably confident he could compete well. Six runners competed. Newton again assisted Hayward with pre-race preparation and race strategy. It was believed he could reach 170 miles. The historic race began on November 20, 1953 at 11am in foggy weather. Hayward started out running comfortable 7 minute miles. He reached 50 miles in 6 hours 6 minutes with a 12 minute lead. By 60 miles I was ahead of the existing world record for the intermediate distances and broke the 100 mile world record with a time of 12 hours, 46 minutes and 34 seconds. The first to break 13 hours. After reaching 100 miles he came off the track for his only long stop for a massage and a bowl of rice pudding. After a half hour's rest, cramping set in and he could hardly walk. Olympic marathoner Tom Richards was there and observed, he had stiffened up so much that it was as if rigor mortis had set in. We took in turns trying to massage some life back into his legs. His huge calf muscles were solid like oak. Eventually he managed to jog on in a painful, awkward looking style. At dawn he was moving with about 10 minute miles with 4 more hours to go. Hayward broke Newton's 152 mile 24 hour record but in the last 80 minutes could only manage 5 miles an hour. He finished with 159 miles, a new 24-hour world record. Hayward held the 24-hour record for the next 26 years. Hayward wasn't terribly pleased with his performance. He said the veins in his right calf of his leg gave him severe pains during the last 10 hours. At the finish, he said, Thank God that's over. Never again. It was awful. It was reported, He flopped exhausted on the dressing room bench and scarcely seemed interested as his aides told him he had smashed every known record from eight hours up. During the monotonous jogging around the oval, he had lost seven pounds. He later reflected, I really made a hash of it. Coming off the track at 100 miles was the biggest mistake I ever made. I just couldn't get going again. For me, it was a wasted opportunity. I should have gone considerably further than I did. If anyone breaks my record, good luck to them. On July 17, 1954, at the age of 46, Hayward made another attempt to break the 100-mile world record, this time on a road in South Africa in midwinter. The weather turned bad with a strong wind a few hours before the start. 
Hayward ate a pre-race meal of a huge steak, two eggs, and 12 slices of brown bread and jam. He was away running at 1 a.m. and said, It was so bitter cold that I put my tracksuit top on, which was not much use as first the rain began, followed by sleet. On top of this, I was running into a 40 mile per hour headwind. The judges suggested I abort the run and try in better conditions, but I refused. I was determined to carry on and come what may. His crew chief kept him full of hot tea or coffee and would throw a heavy woolen blanket over his head and shoulders during his stops. Despite the challenging conditions, he made good progress and in the morning was joined by boys from a local orphanage. He reached 50 miles in 6 hours 20 minutes. With a few miles to go in the afternoon, he still had hopes of breaking the record. However, a steep hill took its toll on him. Hundreds of people, including my wife and daughter, congregated to welcome me at the finish. The crowd gave me a great cheer as I completed the final mile lap and breasted the tape in 13 hours, 8 minutes. This was a new South African record, but well outside my world record time. Sadly, Hayward's amateur career came to an end later that year when the South African Amateur and Cycling Association declared him as a professional, claiming he broke rules for accepting funds directly from donors for his record attempts in England. The declaration was highly controversial and condemned throughout the country. He said, The whole episode was very, very distressing. It was grossly unfair and left me a bitter man. I had done my best for South Africa, and this had happened. His 100-mile running career came to an end. The ban from competition remained until 1974. In 1988, at the age of 79, he finished comrades in under 10 hours, beating half of the field. He finished again the next year at the age of 80. He fell soon after the start, causing great concern, but he got up dusted himself off and proceeded to complete the Comrades Marathon. He only just beat the time limit and was hospitalized for a few days, but he made it. Wally Hayward passed away at the age of 97 in 2006. Padre Island, about 113 miles long, is the longest barrier island in the world. This long, skinny, sandy island is the second largest island by area in the lower 48 states. In the 1950s, the island was undeveloped and was used almost exclusively by ranchers. In 1951, Cash Asher, a journalist and author, was the publicity man for the Padre Island Park Board. He came up with the idea of holding a 110-mile walking race the length of the island end-to-end. -end. This would be a way to get more publicity for the island and thus attract tourists. Asher named the race Padre Island Walkathon. Word of the race was publicized and registration opened in early 1953. The format for the event was as a three-day stage race from the southern tip of the island to the northern end. The contestants would walk on no roads just beach and sandy tracks pounded down by vehicles. This likely was the first post-war trail ultra-marathon event in America. The rules were pretty simple. Running was prohibited. The published rules said, anyone caught will be thrown out of the race. The walkers would cover 25 miles the first day, 42 miles the second day, and 43 miles the final day. They all camped each night on the beach. 
A large support caravan of vehicles would go along with the walkers supplying food, medical treatment, news coverage, and transportation for those who would drop out. Small airplanes were used to fly news copy, photos, and radio recordings to the mainland at Corpus Christi and would come back with supplies. The first event was held on March 27, 1953 with 70 daring starters. None of them had any true experience with this kind of event. More than half of the field, 40 of the 70, didn't make it to the day one camp. And when day three started, there were only six left. Jess Shamblin, age 42 of McGowan, Texas, ended up winning with a total walking time of 28 hours, 48 minutes for the 110 miles. The Padre Island Walkathon created quite a stir in Texas, opening minds to what truly was possible. Covering ultra distances could be accomplished by non-professionals. The race continued to be held in various forms until 1969. See episode 1 for more details. In January 1955, Dick Mitchell, a Marine Corps recruiting sergeant in Carbondale, Illinois, went on a 100-mile hike to raise $5,000 for the March of Dimes. Mitchell, a Purple Heart veteran of the Korean War, gave himself a week to travel a highway route of 14 cities for 100 miles. The recruiter said before his long march he was doing it to help young polio victims whose parents couldn't afford the costly treatment. Mitchell walked in a combat uniform with a rifle slung on his shoulder. He was donned with a pair of well-broken-in GI shoes and was equipped with three pair of wool socks. He said, I can afford a blister or two to help buy crutches for the polio kids. Counting side stops, foot races, and exhibitions, he thought he actually covered 200 miles. At one point, he reached an intersection and vowed he would not move another step until $100 was collected. Mitchell's idea eventually caught on for group walks. The first March of Dimes Walkathon was held in 1958 in Tennessee. All across the land, more than 2 million people marched in 700 walkathons last year. They raised over $6 million for the March of Dimes. In April 1958, protesters got into the 100-mile journey effort. At Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 60 people set off on a 100-mile walk to the United Nations headquarters in New York City to protest nuclear bomb tests which were taking place. They wanted tests to stop because of the danger of radioactive fallout. Many of the walkers brought their children along. They carried signs that read, Stop Atom Tests and Stop to Disarm. Motorists along the way were mostly encouraging and accepted pamphlets. Many with very sore feet made it and joined a group of 500 peace walkers from six states who paraded through midtown Manhattan. Four months later, the United States detonated the first nuclear weapon in outer space. Ronald Hopcroft was born in Cheswick, England, and was active in many sports as a schoolboy. He competed in cross-country and track races before being called into the service during World War II. After returning, he started to run long distances on roads in 1949 at the age of 31. 
In the early 1950s, he started running in ultra-distance races in England, including London to Brighton, where he won in 1956. Hopcroft, like ultra-runners before him, wanted to go after the world-best 100-mile time on the Bath Road from Box to London. He knew that Wally Hayward had set the record in 1953 of 12 hours 20 minutes. On October 25, 1958, Hopcroft decided to run from London to Box and set off from Hyde Park Corner at 5 a.m. Hopcroft wrote, I had always regarded 5 a.m. as the most unearthly hour and swore that once I left the army, nothing would ever get me up at that time. But there I was at Hyde Park Corner, all ready to run 100 miles to the little village of Box. At mile five, Hopcroft parted company with the other runners and went on ahead for the rest of the journey alone, battling the clock. He reached the marathon mark in three hours, two minutes. Near Maidenhead, he was chased by a dog for a couple hundred yards, but no one was in sight to help him. Crowds cheered him on, and he reached 50 miles in five hours, 46 minutes. Between 60 and 70 miles, I had my first feed, a cup of tomato soup, and a very thin, savory sandwich of wholemeal bread dipped in soup. I gobbled it down as quickly as possible while half-trotting. At 80 miles, I was really in trouble. For the first time, I had two or three little walks 20 yards or so, another meal as before, and I was away to a really good spell of 8 miles at a speed just inside 7-minute miles. At mile 95, he was told by a local cyclist that he was going up his last hill. He had exactly 48 minutes left to beat the record. He said, By now we had a terrific following of motorists, motor and pedal cyclists, and pedestrians running. Large group of spectators cheered as they were told that a world record was being broken. Only three miles left now, but what was this? Another hill, and this proved to be the last straw. I just couldn't run up it. Pleadings and exhortations almost turned to threats in an effort to keep me running. It was dusk now, and what a joy to see the lights in the village of Box. But where was Bear Inn? Just around the corner, just around the corner. To my relief, I saw a big banner across the road with the wonder word, finish. He finished in a new world record of 12 hours, 18 minutes, and said, What a reception there was. Almost the whole village had turned out, and females queuing to congratulate me in the traditional manner. Hopkoff continued to compete until 1961 after being stopped by an ankle injury and the pressure of business and family commitments. But he served many years as president of running clubs and died at the age of 98 in 2016. In Bangor, Wales, in 1960, two identical twins, Howard and Vaughn Clark, age 19, staged a 100-mile walking race for the hand of a 19-year-old co-ed they both loved. But I would walk Jean Gowan just couldn't make up her mind which one to marry. Jean finally decided the two electronics engineering students should hold a gentlemanly contest of some kind to settle her indecision once and for all. She said, I love them both. We have thought carefully about who my future husband might be, but we think this is the best way. The winner can take me to the school ball on Saturday, then we'll get the engagement ring. 
All three insisted that the contest was not a publicity stunt and that they were doing it for love, not money. They said if they ended up tied, that they would try something else, perhaps a boxing match. The race began on February 19th, 1960. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more Just to be the man who walked a thousand miles to fall down at your door after the twins reached the 20-mile mark, Vaughn was grabbed by students packed into a waiting car who kidnapped him. Howard then quit the race and said, This has wrecked all our plans. It was believed that Vaughn was taken to the Liverpool campus by students who opposed the gamble for a lady. Jean was in a quandary and said, all this doesn't increase the suspense and frustrates us all. I do hope Vaughn will return so he can continue the race. I do hope Vaughn's safe. I love them both. Vaughn was released and an abbreviated version of the race was then scheduled but stopped when parents of the three stepped in. They said no engagement would take place. The three soon admitted that the love race was just a hoax and that they did it for a publicity stunt to put Banger on the map. And when I grow, Free healthcare. Well, you know, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's growing old with you. But I Stay tuned for more 100 Mile History. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>